And welcome to Popular Apocrypha, the podcast where we do whatever we want because we can. Um, ladies and gentlemen, tonight we have something a little bit different for you. It's a spooky time. Spooky, spooky. story. Spo- I hate the peas. <laughs> really? Yes, the P, the P, especially P-O. I, poo? Oh, yeah, poo drives me nuts. Just it's an uncomfortable Same. sound yeah. for me. <laughs> oh, the sound. Oh. Oh. And the feeling sometimes. There we go. And whatever else may come with it. Fun fact, when you say poo, your mouth makes the same (laughs) shape Uh, as your butt. Well, sweet. When you welcome to our Halloween special for the night. Another fun fact, when two people kiss, it's really just a tube between two buttholes. Yeah. Oh, my God. Another fun fact, when you say the word diarrhea, your mouth also makes the same (laughs) shape as your butt. When you have diarrhea. I think it's actually explosive diarrhea. Oh, is yeah. That makes oh, the same shape as your God. butt when you have explosive diarrhea. <laughs> welcome to the spoopy episode. Yeah, welcome to the most disturbing episode you've ever heard. And on with the story. Yeah. <laughs> Nick, kick it off. Uh, Save us. We've got a few for you tonight, and we'll just dive straight into the first one here. I remember the man with soft teeth. He'd come into my room at night and bite me over and over. The bites didn't hurt and they left no marks. All they felt was pressure. The first time I saw his face, I was terrified. His eyes were different. Instead of two eye sockets, he had nine. They were clustered in front of his face and up on his forehead like honeycomb. Two on top, four in the middle, three on the bottom. The sockets didn't house eyeballs. There was a single thin stalk growing from the center of each hole. Each stalk swayed in the breeze in front of his face like long grass. When he'd visit me, I'd lose the ability to move or scream. All I could do was watch. After a week of visits, my parents not believing a word that came out of my mouth, I thought sleeping with the light on might keep him away. That was the night he started biting my face. The man would always move slowly and with great care. Every motion seemed calculated and precise. I didn't know what he was doing, but I had no doubt he did. The first time I got close to my head, I saw the inside of his mouth. Like his eyes, his teeth were unlike any I'd seen. There were three rows of bulbous growths pushing from an array of holes in his gum line. They looked as soft as they felt. Each one was covered in fine, downy hairs, and they reminded me of fat bodies of moths. He'd open my mouth with his index finger and thumb. Then he'd get close. I felt his eye stalks brushing against my face and forehead and eyes as he pressed his upper teeth against my lower ones. He closed his mouth around my chin, locking my lower jaw in his mouth. It was uncomfortable, but didn't hurt. The man would stay there for ten minutes at a time, gradually modulating the pressure of his jaw against mine. On the last night he visited me, he performed the same steps. Once my jaw was in his mouth, though, he applied more pressure than he used to in the past. His eye stalk straightened out and felt like firm cables against my face. As the pressure increased, I felt his teeth start to burst against my own. One by one, the thick, insectile bodies inside his mouth succumbed to the pressure and coated my tongue and gums with thick, bitter paste. I felt his tongue, which had never been involved in our interactions before, extending over my teeth and massaging the paste into my gums. 
I tried to retch, but even that had been taken from me. The man did the same with my upper teeth and palate. When he left, I could move again. I rushed to the bathroom, threw up, and brushed my teeth more times than I could count. I never saw the man again. It's been 25 years, and I've been plagued by dental issues my entire adult life. Every visit brings worse news. It's gotten to the point where I'm dealing with irreversible bone loss. Eventually, my teeth will fall out. The foundation to which they're attached is simply deteriorating. It's not uncommon, but it's rare for someone my age who is otherwise in perfect health. As if on cue, the day after my most recent trip to the dentist, I lost my first tooth. I'd felt it loosening, and the dentist said it was only a matter of time, and more will follow. I scheduled an appointment to see him in three months. It was as frequent as my insurance would allow. More of my teeth started to wiggle when I poked at them with my tongue, and I started to accept their fate. Recently, my resignation has developed flickers of fear and disbelief. The tooth that fell out started to grow back. I had never heard of such a thing. But I can see something grayish-white pushing through the raw socket. When I touch it with my tongue, it's soft, and I can feel my tongue brushing against it, almost as if it has nerves of its own. I'm trying not to think back to the memories of the man in my room, but it's impossible not to. Not when more of my teeth grow looser by the day, and especially not when I have seven painful sore spots near my eyes and forehead that feel softer than they should. That was Soft Teeth by u slash IIA on r slash no sleep. Um, if you want to find more of his material, go to Unsettling Stories on Facebook or Instagram. So, Soft Teeth is one of my favorite stories of all time. Um, I love reading that one. I've read it time and time and time again. Um, I like the idea um, that's presented in it, this unknown monster or unknown thing that comes at the night and doesn't seem to want to hurt you, even though it's kind of really creepy. Um, until later we kind of discover that, oh, maybe it's just trying to reproduce or turn me into one of them. Yeah. Makes it's a, it's a little, it's a little gross, it's a little creepy. Um, but this one's one of my favorites of all time. Um, the quote unquote twist at the end that he's starting to turn into one, um, really kind of gets me like, that's, that's kind of freaks me out is the idea that at the end, even if he's just there freaking you out it still did something to you that has long-lasting effects. Mm -hmm. So speculative question that I have is, do you think that there's only ever one? I don't know. Um, it, it like That's never touched, but right. I, I would assume that there probably aren't very many. So, But you think that, that so, because what my just imagination was telling me was like, once the, this, this creature, this being, um, eventually gets to the point where this person is going to turn into it that, mm -hmm. that same sort of creature like it would die or whatever like yeah, it would cease to I, exist i don't know why that's just what my brain was telling me because his teeth popped yeah he popped his teeth i guess maybe that's why and i guess that was kind of something like it, it felt really insectile about yeah it, exactly know? like like when bees reproduce or or fornicate um <laughs> Or fornicate. Ah, when bees when, when bees be f when bees make love 
when bees bang? So when, when, bees, when bees are doing their thing. When and, bees make passionate love. Yeah. Their testicles explode when they ejaculate. I don't think that's true. It's true. No. It's true. Drone bees, uh, when they, as they finish ejaculating, their testicles explode and it kills them. See, I thought that it was that the female bee killed them. No, it's, I know that's praying mantises. That's like mantises and spiders and stuff. I thought it was also bees. No, the queen doesn't kill the drones. The drones end up um, having exploded testicles, or what Ow. would what would be testicles on in a bee? Um, mm, sucks to and, suck. And so they that explodes, giving them enough time to get away before dying and then being removed from the from the hive. So, given a proper military funeral, yes, exactly. Um, burned at this, not at the stake, just nope, cremated. That is not a proper cremated. military yep, funeral, not at all. Um, yikes, just <laughs> <laughs> and so that's that's kind of that idea of the the male does his thing, and then because he's been able to reproduce, he just goes off and. And dies. Right. That's kind of what my brain was telling me. Since that, 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 the monster, the creature, whatever it is, the man with soft teeth feels so insectile in my mm-hmm. brain. And, and like, as I'm, I'm seeing him, like, in my brain, he's always been super skinny. Yeah. Like, yeah. uh, kind of like Jack Skellington, like long and skinny. And then he, he, like, maybe with slightly larger head than normal. And when he crawls up on you, it's very gentle and slow. And then, boom. Then he gets, yeah. Yeah. Puts his mouth all up in you. Not in you. I mean, in you. It, in it, you. I mean, in your mouth. One, in in your mean, mouth. That, yeah. that isn't, it's not not in you. Fair. And so it feels very insectile to me. The, the crawling and the, and the eyes and the popping of things to reproduce. So yeah, I guess that's kind of why I would, I, I, I imagine, and I would imagine that there's only ever one of these beings. Or, well, no. Yeah, because at some point... There was an original one of these creatures. Yeah. And then it died. It's not like Correct. it created multiple offspring and then that started. I, mm-hmm. I don't think it would be his only ever one. That's what so. I, that's kind of the vibe I'm getting is there's, there's one at a time. So now the author, they're, they're the current one, I guess now. Sounds like it. Bummer, bummer. It was pretty spooky. Not yeah. gonna lie. It's like I said, it's one of my favorites. It was, yeah. It's, it was cringy. It's gross. <laughs> it's cringy. Well, cringy because like it's like, it. it's like. Because it was Nick. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, right. No. I was not going to the story. No. Because the, the, like, I don't know. I, I feel like there are in often horror stories, fates worse than death. Mm-hmm. In becoming the monster through a slow, painful, like, I, I feel like even there's, there's grades to it, right? Because dying versus being turned into a monster I, I would rather die than get turned into the monster yeah but then there's also turning the monster where it's sudden and fast and then slow and over time and you know what's happening yeah and so it's playing on those two things of you know what's happening and you can't do anything to stop it i think honestly that part of the story is the scarier part of the story than the dude actually being there. The involuntary, Mm. it being forced on you. That's the scariest part. Loss of control. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Loss of control, but also you know what's happening. Yeah. Over a very long period of time. Yeah. No good. Yeah. Yeah. Conscious, involuntary transfer metamorphosis. Yes. Gross, gross. gross. Insect language. Just like puberty. No. Uh Ah. Just like well, puberty. It's not like puberty. It's a well, constant metamorphosis. 
that you didn't choose. But that you're aware but of. But it's happening to you. And you and you know it's happening. You grow hair and replaces. Your voice changes. No one bit my mouth to make me start puberty. No, but other things happened. I'll bite your mouth right now. <laughs> I've already hit puberty. <laughs> I don't think that was part of the equation. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not necessarily... <laughs> I just want mouth-to-mouth contact. <laughs> oh. So wow. I was shooting for mm. Hmm. Welcome Tyler to the Halloween Pinsons. special. Yeah, welcome. This yeah. is popular podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so the like, new Valentine's special. About <laughs> oh. Bees getting it on and mouth to mouth contact. Use it for both. It's yeah. like yeah. how you can watch Nightmare Before Christmas around Christmas time or Halloween. I love that movie. I, mean, I do too. Last year we only did one special and it was Halloween. So this year another Two one specials. special. Halloween and Valentine's. We Day. We already missed Valentine's Day. And. Christmas. <laughs> Kwanzaa. Yes. Kwanzaa no. special. No. Why not? I don't know. Ramadan. Festivus. Festivus Wait, special. Is this Ramadan? Or is it Ramudan? I think it's Ramadan. Isn't that what I said? I thought you said Ramudan. I don't think so. Did I? No. Does it matter? I think it matters. We're doing a Festivus. What? Special. Festivus. Yeah, Festivus. Festivus for the rest okay. of us. Hmm? Cool. Yeah. Hmm? Well, I don't know what's happening. Are we moving on to Tyler's story? Is it my turn? <laughs> I think so. All right. I think the next story is... Tyler? Yes, I can see people's auras, and I hate saying it so bluntly. It makes me sound like some hack psychic who fakes the ability as a means of exploitation and a paycheck. I've never made money from my ability. I've never taken advantage of it, and until now I've never spoken of it to anybody. But I do really see them, and I'm starting to view it as more of a curse. I have a reason for typing this out, and I assure you, there isn't a happy ending. For me, it's quite simple. I see a faint light surrounding people, everyone, and in that light, I can see their morality. The brighter and more translucent the light is, the better the person. The darker and opaquer, the worse. Dim and partly translucent are morally ambiguous. To simplify things, those are the three ways I describe them. Dark equals evil, bright equals good, dim equals somewhere in between. It's strange, I've always viewed the people with gray slash dim R's as arbiters, uh, mediators. The people in between who aren't one or the other, and will always have difficult decisions to make. I was a child when I first became aware of my gift. It didn't take long to figure out that my, the brighter R's were kinder to me and selfless. While both of my parents are good people, my father's aura was quite a bit brighter than my mother's. As a result, he was always far more patient and understanding with me. It was clear to see that my teachers and fellow students with brighter auras were usually friendlier and more compassionate. The dark auras were the stereotypical fighters, lunch money stealers, and bullies. I would say I was around mm, eight years old when I fully figured out that I have a gift that most people don't have, that possibly nobody else has. I've read some of the New Age websites and alternative medicine articles that give their take on aura reading. While I, while I believe that the vast majority of it is bullshit, I expect there must be at least some other people out there with my ability. So I don't want to completely dismiss those people as an outright hoax, it's just that for me it doesn't work anything like the way those websites describe. I've visited numerous aura readers and psychics and most of them have dim or dark auras themselves and I'm certain they don't really hold this power. I'm not saying all psychics are terrible people. I visited a few who had very bright auras. They were unable to convince me that they really had psychic powers, but they at the very least used their deception to try and help people. You need to understand, I'm, I'm going to end this entry by sharing a terrifying event that is happening to me. But before I get to that, I think there are a few more things I need to explain. 
I imagine many of you are curious as to what type of aura is the most common. I'm happy to tell you that the majority of people are somewhere between dim and bright. I see very few dark auras. That This isn't scientific and I haven't traveled the world plotting out charts and graphs, but I'm, I'd estimate around 60% of people are bright-ish. Around 25% are dim-ish, uh, leaving just around 15% of people dark-ish. Um, again, these are just estimates. What's the difference, the precise difference between, say, bright and dim? I have no idea. But rest assured, there seem to be far more bright in the world than dark. Um, the next thing I'd like to discuss is children. I can see a person's aura right from birth, um, and I've never encountered an aura changing as someone ages. I'm not sure what this means for the whole nature versus nurture debate, and I'm not saying that everyone with a dark aura always behaves terribly or vice versa. A person with a bright aura might be born with into horrible conditions, um, acquire a drug problem, and then resort to thievery to feed their addiction. I, I think the difference is, is this. A, a, a bright aura thief with a horrible upbringing may rob someone, but they would never intentionally hurt someone in the process. A dark or darker aura thief would kill someone if they could get away with it without necessarily even a second thought. Another interesting note, I find the ratio between bright, dim, and dark to be similar across pretty much all human activities. Whether I'm at a church or a death metal concert, it always seems to be around that same 60, 25, 15 ratio. I, all, I once visited a federal prison and was shocked to see that at least half of the prisoners had bright auras. I had to be at the prison in person to see this because I can't see auras on photographs or television shows or movies or even in mirrors. I can only see auras in the real world in person. Another strange thing, I can't even see my own aura. I assume and hope I would be on the brighter spectrum, but I can't see it. The brightest person I ever saw worked as a social worker. She shone so bright that it was difficult for me to even look at her. But based on the way people acted in her presence, I think that almost everyone around her could sense her brightness in a, sub in a subconscious way. Everyone loved her. She had donated a kidney to someone she barely even knew. She had a special needs adopted child. Most of the money she earned was donated to various charities. And that's only the little that I knew of her. This woman shined so brightly that she scared me. It was scary that someone could be so good. But it wasn't nearly as scary as the darkest person I ever saw. I was 20 years old at the time, leaving a club downtown at 2 a.m. A man quietly walked down the street. I didn't see him at first, but I noticed the light dimming around me. This man was so dark that he partly absorbed the light around him. I looked at him long and hard. He looked desperate, cruel, and callous. When he looked up and locked eyes with me, it made me fall back. He smirked, as though he knew what I could see. I saw his face up close. I would never forget it. And I recognized it. When I saw his mugshot a few weeks later in the newspaper, when he had murdered his ex-wife and two children in cold blood. I think I need to get to it now, the reason why I'm telling you this. I, I fell in love a year ago. She didn't shine anywhere near as bright as what I've seen before, but she most assuredly wasn't dark or even dim. She was beautiful. Her sense of humor, her wit, her everything. She was my dream woman, and I've never told her anything about all the R's I see. I could go into far more about her, but this isn't a love story. What's important is this. We fell in love. She got pregnant. We got married. We were happy. We were so happy. I remember hearing the buzz of my phone two mornings ago. I remember my excitement when I saw, it's happening, come to the hospital. I remember my frustration when I got stuck in traffic. I remember how long it took to find a parking spot. I remember shouting at a nurse, what room is my wife in? I remember bursting through a door and seeing the smile on my wife's face. I remember seeing the doctor, his light shining so bright as he told me, congratulations, it's a boy. The doctor held him up for me and all the light in the room dissipated. No, this can't be, I remember saying. The doctor put him in my arms. 
The darkness around my son was so absolute that I could barely even see him. He was a void. He was so dark that the world barely even existed around him. It was like nothing I'd ever experienced. I started weeping. I think my wife and the doctor thought they were tears of joy, but they weren't. Lord knows they weren't. I think back to the dark outline around that man that murdered his family. It was up to that point the darkest I'd ever seen. But the darkness around my own son was a hundred times worse. A thousand times worse. And what could possibly be a thousand times worse than murdering your entire family? It's been two days now. We're home now. My son's darkness is so extreme that it dims the hallway leading to his room. My wife knows something is wrong. I think she suspects I'm having regrets about having children at all. If only she knew. What do I do? He's my son. Just 20 minutes ago, I stood above him holding a pillow over his face, but I couldn't do it. Not yet, anyway. A man who could murder his two-day-old baby boy, what color would his aura be? And here's the thought that keeps going through my mind as I sit here alone. The fathers of our worst. Ad the Adolf Hitlers, Joseph Stalins, Timothy McVeighs. If their fathers knew what they had, would become, would they murder them in the cradle? Would they have the strength to hold down the pillow as long as it takes? I can see the door of my son's room from my office. The hallway seems to be growing darker. I look down at my hands as I, as I say this. Maybe I'm going crazy, but there seems to be an aura around my hands and arms now. It's gray. It's dim. Maybe it's always been dim. I'm looking down at the pillow beside me now. The grayish, dim outline around my hands more apparent than ever. Maybe it's time. Maybe this is why I have this gift. It all comes down to right now, this moment. Maybe it's time. I think it's time. I can see people's auras and it's a curse uh, from the author A10A10A10 uh, as read off of scaryhorrorstories.net on Tumblr. So I really like scary stories that make you think. Um, that they're in some ways, I guess that's maybe less creepy because uh, it's more understandable in some ways. But um, I, I like this one because it. it I mean, it puts me in the the shoes of this person, and w if I knew or had good, very good reason to believe that this individual, this other person, was going to become a horrible human being and make horrible things happen, would I be obligated? And then would I actually do anything about it? I mean, would I, would I stoop to, stoop? I don't even know if stoop is the right word. Would I, would I commit myself to the act of, as far as, murdering my own child if I knew or or I thought that I knew for sure relatively that they would become the next the, I mean in in terms of the story um the next Hitler or Mussolini or some or Stalin or some, someone yeah something crazy is, it does terrible commits atrocities it's I think it's neat because the story not only like throws it from a weird vibe but then also asks that moral question right like do you take the life to, do you take a life to possibly save others or to stop something from happening and then also do you take the life of your child right to stop to stop something from happening so it's more than just like that unsettling idea of like being able to see when people are evil or good but also the like that ask that question like 
what do you do about it? Can you do anything about it? And how confident can you even be? Yeah. Because this apparently in the story, this individual has never been wrong. Mm-hmm. They've never had any situation where the aura projection has seemed incorrect or flawed in any way. Right. And so how much how much doubt would would you have if your own kid was this dark? I mean, here I guess the question that I have for both of you and for myself as well is what would you do? Or what do you think you would do? If you thought beyond a reasonable doubt that the, that your your like three-day-old child, two- or three-day-old child was going to become this horrible person. Horrible, horrible person. And maybe, I don't even know if we want to answer that. I, I mean, but... I, I don't know if I could. Yeah. You know, I, don't, like, I don't have kids. No. I, 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 I plan to. I mean, if I knew, like speaking from what experience I do have, if I knew my dog was going to be an evil dog, I it would be really hard to smother my dog. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. <laughs> and that's just my dog, you know. Yeah. Um I I kind of wonder to go back to the question. It it almost kind of, and I know it's it's escapist in a little bit of a way to get around the story. Okay. But it seems because there's a light aura, a gray aura and a dark aura, right? It kind of seems like the aura is less about the good or the evilness of the person and more about their perhaps I'm trying to think of the right word. It's not it's not intent but proclivities, yeah, I like guess. Tendencies. 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 Yeah. Said, yeah. Um because someone that the the girl, the lady that shined really, really bright had often tendencies for doing really, really good, good things, things. Yeah. Right? Objectively good things. And then uh, people that were in the gray just kind of fell both ways. Right. The mediators. Right. The the line between the two, mm-hmm. I guess. And if if you're going from a tendency thing, right, the, the dude that killed his wife and two kids, or however many kids, the, the murderer yeah. Yeah. that he encounters on the street, had a really, really dark aura. Right. Right. Um. And he made it till adulthood before he did anything. Well, according to the story, at so least. far as we know, so far as we are given knowledge, right to know exactly, right. I, I mean, and that's just what was public in the newspaper because right, of what right. happened. Though I think I would agree that the core of the story is getting at the question of if you know Adolf Hitler's mom or or dad knew what he was going to do, right? Like that's the core of the story. I think maybe even more core to the story, maybe, I don't know. This is very philosophical, obviously, which is why I like it. Um, uh, R slash I'm very smart. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I mean, at what, so so that that person, the the person that that killed his family in the story, um, but then the kid is, that his son is like a thousand times worse than that. At what point do tendencies become all that is reality? Like if, if, every tendency of a person is evil then aren't they evil i don't know i think i think we gotta be careful with this like do we choose to judge people by their tendencies thing um, no i i agree i be, think for yeah. for a few for a few reasons like 
he says in the story that he goes to a, a prison. He's been to a max facility, and he saw some bright auras in there, some mm-hmm. light auras in there. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that just kind of goes to show that your aura does not, or your tendencies do not determine your action or what you're going to do. Right. Um, your, like, your things that you're tempted to do or things that you think about doing do not necessarily dictate that you're going to do them. Right. I completely like, agree. And there's oh, that yeah. there's that, that idea that, that that's thrown around everyone's well called like the call in, call of the void, right? And so the idea of the call of the void is that everybody gets these these thoughts or these feelings that are just out of the blue and just nuts. Like, all right, what happens if I like what if I stepped off this ledge? What if I um what if what if I stepped into oncoming traffic? What if I turned my wheel into this crowd of pedestrians. What if I um, took this this knife in front of me and just started going on a stabbing spree? Terrible things. Yeah, terrible things. And everybody has them. Well, a lot of people have them. I can't, say, I can't speak for everyone, but it's, it's recognized all over the place that this happens and people have these thoughts and these feelings but choose not to act on them all the time, right? And so I think the idea is like to, that that because somebody has tendencies or thoughts or the ability to do wrong. I think we got to be careful not to be like, all right, now we got to get rid of them because they have the yeah. ability to right. do wrong. And, right. And, and that I think is for me, that's kind of the conclusion of this story is that, because for me, I very much believe in like, again, like it was mentioned in the story, nature versus nurture. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of what makes a person up like who they are, isn't just their naturally born aura or whatever like those sorts of things, those sorts of mentalities or philosophies, but also the random context that you're thrown into, how you're mm-hmm. raised, all sorts, mm-hmm. all sorts of other factors. Um, often, um, for for many for many people, unfortunately, um, terribly, uh, traumas that are experienced in childhood um, that make make you who you are um, in very unfortunate ways, and also really good things make you who you are from when you were younger and growing up and stuff. So I think that's kind of the ultimate flaw of the story. I still think it's really interesting oh, yeah, to talk sure. about. It's a great definitely. thought experiment, yeah. Oh, yeah. if nothing else. Yeah. But yeah, no, I definitely think the story is flawed and uh, puts too much uh, emphasis on this ethereal aura of a person mm-hmm. in, as far mm-hmm. as their morality goes, right. which I just don't think is accurate. Right. But yeah. Nurture all the way, baby. Yeah, me too. I mean, kind of. Psychology is like nurture works with what nature provides. And nurture is a lot more than you think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot. For and real. Not, but not also nature like on the nurture, opposite. Yeah. There is a lot into nature too. Yeah. Um, like things that very, very young babies do innately that yeah. you can't teach them. They just do. Things that um, seem to be tied to genetics. Mm-hmm. Lots of, there's so many things. Mm-hmm. There's Randomness. been a couple of really cool studies on what babies see as fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like what, yeah. what their idea of fairness is and. I don't know. It's just and, really cool. And young offspring of other animals, even mm-hmm. not just not just human babies too. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. All right. But anyway, that's that's why I like this story, and that's why I wanted to bring it up and talk with you guys. About as a it. as an end point, do you think it's weird that he couldn't see his own aura until the end? Does that show something? I think is that a a, a, a like, prequel to? I guess I must have missed that. can change. I didn't realize that he could he could see his own aura at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't he, catch that. He was he thought that he saw his own aura, like and I gray. think that that's more accurate. That okay. he's projecting. I don't think he actually could, mm. um, given the rest of the story, to have it be 
consistent and, and cogent. I think that he never actually could, but that now that he's in this situation, he's perceiving that he does. Hmm. And at that point, what's the difference? I guess that's fair. So. Hmm. All right. Yeah. Well, there you go. Cool. All so right. now. Yeah, I think we've got one more story on the on the docket for tonight. Scary yeet noises. Heck yes, brother. Yeet. Yeet. It's a ghost yeet. Riley, just yeah, do your John. story. All right. In the living room, the voice clock sang, Tick-tock, seven o'clock, time to get up, time to get up, seven o'clock. As if it were afraid that nobody would, the morning house lay empty. The clock ticked on, repeating and repeating its sounds into the emptiness. Seven-nine, breakfast time, seven-nine. In the kitchen, the breakfast stove gave a hissing sigh and ejected from its warm interior eight pieces of perfectly browned toast. Eight eggs sunny side up, 16 slices of bacon, two coffees, and two cool glasses of milk. Today is August 4th, 2026, said a second voice from the kitchen ceiling, in the city of Allendale, California. It repeated the date three times for memory's sake. Today is August 4th, 2026. Today is August 4th, 2026. Today is Mr. Featherstone's birthday. Today is the anniversary of Talita's marriage. Insurance is payable, as are the water, gas, and light bills. Somewhere in the walls, relays clicked. Memory tapes glided under electric eyes. 8-1, tick-tock, 8-1 o'clock. Off to school, off to work, run, run, 8-1. But no doors slammed. No carpets took the soft tread of rubber heels. It was raining outside. The weather box on the front door sang quietly. Rain, rain, go away. Umbrellas, raincoats for today. And the rain tapped on the empty house, echoing. Outside, the garage chimed and lifted its door to reveal the waiting car. After a long wait, the door swung down again. At 8.30, the eggs were shriveled and the toast was like stone. An aluminum wedge scraped them into the sink, where hot water whirled them down a metal throat which digested and flushed them away to the distant sea. The dirty dishes were dropped into a hot washer and emerged twinkling dry. 9.15, sang the clock. Time to clean. Out of warns in the wall, tiny robot mice darted. The rooms were a crawl with the small cleaning animals, all rubber and metal. They thudded against chairs, whirling their mustache runners, kneading the rug nap, sucking gently at hidden dust. Then, like mysterious invaders, they popped into their burrows. Their pink electric eyes faded, and the house was clean. Ten o'clock. The sun came out from behind the rain. The house stood alone in a city of rubble and ashes. This was the one house left standing. At night, the ruined city gave off a radioactive glow which could be seen for miles. Ten fifteen. The garden sprinklers rolled up in a golden founts, filling the soft morning air with scatterings of brightness. The water pelted window panes, running down the charred west side where the house had been burned, evenly free of its white paint. The entire west face of the house was black, save for five places. Here the silhouette and paint of a man mowing a lawn. Here, as in a photograph, a woman bent to pick flowers. Still farther over, their images burned on wood in one titanic instant. A small boy, 
hands flung into the air. Higher up, the image of a thrown ball, and opposite him, a girl, hands raised to catch a ball, which never came down. The five spots of paint, the man, the woman, the children, and the ball remained. The rest was a thin charcoal layer, and the gentle sprinkler rain filled the garden with falling light. Until this day, how well the house had kept its peace, how careful it had inquired, who goes there? What's the password? And getting no answer from lonely foxes and whining cats, it shut up its windows and drawn shades in an old, maidenly preoccupation with self-protection, which bordered on a mechanical paranoia. It quivered at each sound the house did. If a sparrow brushed a window, the shade snapped up. The bird startled flew off. No, not even a bird must touch the house. Twelve noon! A dog whined, shivering on the front porch. The front door recognized the dog voice and opened. The dog, once huge and fleshy, but now gone to bone and covered with sores, moved in and through the house, tracking mud. Behind it were angry mice, angry at having to pick up mud, angry at inconvenience. For not a leaf fragment blew under the door, but what the wall panels flipped open and the copper scrap rats flashed swiftly out. The offending dust, hair, or paper seized in miniature steel jaws was raced back to the burrows. There, down tubes which fed into the cellar, it was dropped into the sighing vent of an incinerator which sat like evil ball in a dark corner. The dog ran upstairs, hysterically yelping to each door. At last realizing, as the house realized, that only silence was here. It sniffed the air and scratched the kitchen door. Behind the door, the stove was making pancakes which filled the house with a rich baked odor and the scent of maple syrup. The dog frothed at the mouth, lying at the door, sniffing, sniveling. Its eyes turned to fire. It ran wildly in circles, biting at its tail, spun in a frenzy, and died. It lay in the parlor for an hour. Two o'clock, sang a voice. Delicately sensing decay, at last, the regiments of mice hummed out as softly as blown gray leaves in an electrical wind. Two fifteen. The dog was gone. In the cellar, the incinerator glowed suddenly, and a whirl of sparks leaped up the chimney. 2.35! Bridge tables spouted from patio walls. Playing cards fluttered onto pads in a shower of pips. Martinis manifested on an oaken bench with egg salad sandwiches, and music played. But the tables were silent, and the cards untouched. At four o'clock, the tables folded like great butterflies back through the paneled walls. 4.30! The nursery walls glowed. Animals took shape. Yellow giraffes, blue lions, pink antelopes, lilac panthers, cavorting in crystal substance. The walls were glass. They looked out upon color and fantasy. Hidden films clocked through well-oiled sprockets, and the walls lived. The nursery floor was woven to resemble a crisp, cereal meadow. Over this ran aluminum roaches and iron crickets, and in the hot, still air, butterflies of delicate red tissue wavered among the sharp aroma of animal spores. There was a sound like a great matted yellow hive of bees within a dark bellows and the lazy bumble of a purring lion. And there was the patter of okapi feet and the murmur of a fresh jungle rain like other hooves falling upon the summer-starched grass. 
Now the walls dissolve into distances of parched grass, mile on mile in warm, endless sky. The animals drew away into the thorn breaks and water holes. It was the children's hour. Five o'clock! The bath filled with clear, hot water. Six o'clock! Seven o'clock! Eight o'clock! The dinner dishes manipulated like magic tricks, and in the study a click, in the metal stand opposite the hearth, where a fire now blazed up warmly, a cigar popped out, half an inch of soft gray ash on it, smoking, waiting. Nine o'clock! The beds warmed their hidden circuits, for nights were cool here. Nine five! A voice spoke from the study ceiling. Mrs. McClellan, which poem would you like this evening? The house was silent. The voice said at last, Since you express no preference, I shall select a poem at random. Quiet music rose to back the voice. Sarah Teasdale, as I recall, your favorite. There will come soft rains and the smell of the ground and swallows circling with their shimmering sound, and frogs in the pools singing at night, and wild plum trees in tremulous white. Robins will wear their feathery fire, whistling their whims on low fence wire, and not one will know of war, not one will care at last when it is done, not one would mind, neither bird nor tree, if mankind perished utterly, and spring herself when she woke at dawn, would scarcely know that we were gone. The fire burned on the stone hearth and cigar fell away into a mound of quiet ash on its tray. The empty chairs faced each other between silent walls and music played. Ten o'clock! The house began to die. The wind blew. A falling tree bough crashed through the kitchen window. Cleaning solvent, bottled, shattered over the stove and the room was ablaze in an instant. Fire! screamed a voice. The house lights flashed, water pumps shot water from the ceilings, but the solvent spread on the linoleum, licking, eating under each kitchen door, while the voices took it up in chorus. Fire! 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 The house tried to save itself. Doors sprang tightly shut, but the windows were broken by the heat, and the wind blew and sucked upon the fire. The house gave ground as the fire and ten billion angry sparks moved with flaming ease from room to room and then up the stairs, while scurrying water rats squeaked from the walls, pistoled their water, and ran for more, and the wall sprays let down showers of mechanical rain. But too late. Somewhere, sighing, a pump shrugged to a stop and the quenching rain ceased. The reserve water supply, which had filled baths and washed dishes for many quiet days, was gone. The fire crackled up the stairs. It fed on Picassos and Matisses in the upper halls, like delicacies baking off the oily flesh, tenderly crisping the canvases into black shavings. Now the fire lay in beds, stood in windows, changed the color of the drapes. And then, reinforcements. From attic trapdoors, blind robot faces peered down with faucet mouths, gushing green chemical. The fire backed off, as even an elephant must at the sight of a dead snake. Now there were twenty snakes whipping over the floor, killing the fire with clear, cold venom of green froth. But the fire was clever. It had sent flame outside the house, up through the attic to the pumps there, 
An explosion. The attic brain which directed the pumps was shattered into bronze shrapnel on the beams, and the fire rushed back into every closet and felt of the clothes hung there. The house shuddered. Oak bone on bone, its bared skeleton cringing from the heat, its wire, its nerves revealed as if a surgeon had torn the skin off to let the red veins and capillaries quiver in the scalded air. Help! Fire! Help! Run! Run! Heat snapped mirrors like the first brittle winter ice, and the voices wailed. Fire! Fire! Run! Like a tragic nursery rhyme, a dozen voices, high, low, like children, dying in a forest, alone. And the voices, fading as the wires popped their sheathings like hot chestnuts. One, two, three, four, five. Voices, dead. In the nursery, the jungle burned. Blue lions roared, purple giraffes bounded off, the panthers ran in circles changing color, and ten million animals, running before the fire, vanished off toward a distant steaming river. Ten more voices died. In the last instant, under the fire avalanche, other choruses, oblivious, could be heard announcing the time, cutting the lawn by remote control mower, or setting an umbrella frantically out and in, the slamming and opening front door, a thousand things happening like a clock shop when each clock strikes the hour insanely before or after the other, a scene of maniac confusion, yet unity, singing, screaming, a few last cleaning mice darting bravely out to carry the horrid ashes away, and one voice, with sublime disregard for the situation, read poetry aloud in the fiery study, until all the film spools burned and all the wires withered, and the circuits cracked. The fire burst through the house and let it slam flat down, puffing out skirts of spark and smoke. In the kitchen, an instant before the rain of fire and timber, the stove could be seen, making breakfast at a psychopathic rate. Ten dozen eggs, six loaves of toast, twenty dozen bacon strips, which, eaten by the fire, started the stove working again and hysterically hissing. The crash. The attic smashed into kitchen and parlor. The parlor into cellar. Cellar into sub-cellar. Deep freeze. Armchair. Film tapes. Circuits. Beds. And all like skeletons thrown in a cluttered mound deep under. Smoke. And silence. A great quantity of smoke. Dawn showed faintly in the east. Among the ruins, one wall stood alone. Within the wall, a last voice said, over and over, again and again, even as the sun rose to shine upon the heaped rubble and steam. Today is August 5th, 2026. Today is August 5th, 2026. Today is... That was There Will Come Soft Rains by Ray Bradbury. That's one of my favorite, favorite scary stories. And I think the reason is it's not because it's scary, but haunting. Yeah. I think. It's Um, it's different. mm -hmm. It's very much different. And it's not 
your typical horror or your your spooks, you know? Right. I think the way that Bradbury writes is awesome in that he uses a lot of um, kind of he he creates images and then creates them up to the point in which he lets them go and lets you mm-hmm. like make them from that point on like then you can fill in the gaps mm-hmm. but also i've really i really like the language that he uses if he's describing something tends to be about like is kind of almost a word in and of it a word picture in and of itself mm-hmm. when he describes steel mice like he uses really cold sounding words yeah. that have a lot of ease and yeah. ugh, like he uses words that help create the image i don't know i just think his writing style is really great yeah. um but also the story context as a whole i think it's just very haunting the idea of some the idea of something going on long after we're gone right right like uh, autonomous things right whatever that may be right and almost, I think, what makes it more haunting, because there's stories about life after people and what animals would do and, and all this stuff. I think what makes this story more haunting is something created by people intended for people that now has no audience. Right. Or no, it just goes. Well, it, it, was, it was interesting to me that, uh, like, the dog that that comes mm-hmm. up and is is recognized halfway through the story and and enters the house only to die mm-hmm. you know and it, it kind of leaves this this feeling of like dread or unease with with you with that one like the house recognizes that the dog is there mm-hmm. but the house is not for the dog the, the house does not feed the dog mm-hmm. the house does not care for the dog the house just recognizes this animal is allowed in the house mm-hmm. and opens the door for the dog who then proceeds to die which begs the question, like, what else is dead in that house? Mm-hmm. Yep. Like, what else is what else was alive or survived? Whatever happened, the blast we're assuming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that and, seems fairly clear. Yeah, the yeah. blast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where yeah. the images are painted into yeah. the house. Yeah. yeah. That's a haunting image. That would yeah. really like. Mm-hmm. He, he paints it so well. Mm-hmm. He like he paints with his words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, so. I, I, I've, I think read everything by Ray Bradbury when I was younger, and I, I've always loved the exaggerated realism that that he paints pictures with. That mm-hmm. he takes something that either does currently in real life exist, or that we kind of expect to exist, like the automated houses and stuff. Have we? We kind of like already know, like that's going to happen. It already mm-hmm. is kind of happening, and I mean, so yeah, then he exaggerates it, and then takes it to kind of a uh 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 fine what's the word fi- not finalistic uh what's i'm trying to think of what the what the right word is but um uh, how, how do you say it in english just kidding um, <laughs> how do you say <laughs> finality of life uh, uh, finality but, of existence uh, I, it is it's that finality of existence it's very existential like mm-hmm. especially because it's like this didn't have to happen, right? Because the assumption is also made pretty clear that this blast also human made. Yes, and therefore, oh, yes. why did this have to be? Yeah, the uh, the poem talks about war. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I think you, what I love about this story too is it begs the question: How long has the house been yeah, going? That mystery. That's mm-hmm. uh, that. That's what that maybe that's what really bugs me personally. Because yeah, because the how the... long. The day is the same, right? No, it's not the same. The days tick on. Okay, yeah, but but we don't know how long that's been. But we don't know what the we first just know day that was. the 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 family or the people outside were 
painted on the wall at one point. At some point. By a blast. And we don't know when that blast was. Nope. We just know that it's this been a while. House continues to do its, its thing. Yeah, it it hasn't been super recent. Yeah. Through, we through, know that it wasn't very recent. Through the fire and the flames. Right. Dragon well, I I think it's interesting because it's yeah right. Uh, it's long enough to be clear that things aren't right, mm-hmm. but not long enough for the dog the dog died. to have died. Yep. Yeah. So I mean that I mean. I couldn't tell you. I mean, it's anywhere between. Yeah. How long that dog would have been able to survive? Zero and sixteen years. Yeah. Unless you're my dog, and he's gonna live forever. Yeah. Cal or maybe like, eternally. what if it's not the same dog? No, it's the it's the family dog, because that's why he's let into the house. I'm I'm just thinking like, what if the house is malfunctioning like it is in some ways? Like some some parts of the house are malfunctioning. What if it lets in the wrong dog? But you it, don't really get any clues that that is the case, though. Right. So that's Especially very much speculative. Because the story talks about how it's on alpha protocol security mode, like it snaps at a bird. Yeah. Yeah, that's like, true. It, yeah. It shuts shuts for every other noise. But this lot, this dog is. Loving. You're right. That's mm-hmm. a good point. That's a good point. Uh, so, so yeah, like maybe it's it's a mixture of cameras and microphones. That... All right. So somewhere around between some zero to sixteen years. Yeah, I mean, who knows how long that dog was wandering and surviving off scraps or mm-hmm. what was left of animals that weren't obliterated, right? Or, or whatnot. Or I mean, obviously the dog was far enough away that it didn't get caught in the blast. Mm-hmm. You know. Or um, protected and shielded by yeah, something. Found found something, um, and so I like basically like we don't know how long it was. I mean, it mm-hmm. wasn't it wasn't hundreds of years, mm-hmm. but no. you could have been in the house when the bomb went off. Yeah, theoretically, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like the idea behind that. Like we don't know mm-hmm. how long this has been happening, yeah. and but that's, we know that that's life really been, haunting. It's continuing on. With or without the people. And then the thing that's the, the cinch pin, like the cherry on top is at the end, it's still going. Yeah. Yep. Even the, though the house isn't really there anymore, it's still the, counting down. The, the automation is continuing. Yeah. Like, after, even after the, the flames and, and losing parts of it, it just continues to cruise. Which, again, there's so much depth in, in his writing, in, in Bradbury's writing. But, like, at that point... Really, I mean, at, at what point did it, it lose its purpose, mm-hmm. I guess, is another question. Mm-hmm. When did that happen? The mm-hmm. loss of its true purpose. When the humans died, when the dog died, when when the house burned down, when the blast happened at all. I mean, that's a whole other question. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And the, the loss of a human-made thing, the loss of its purpose, that, that hits a little hard to me now that I'm thinking about it. Because, mm-hmm. like, we made that. And it no longer functions according to any intention. And so what's the point? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I, I think uh, to to finish on that statement, I think that maybe that's also what is a little bit eerie and kind of haunting about the story, too, is is that the house doesn't care. Right. But it does care. Right. Like it cares in its function. But it doesn't know what's happened. Yeah. It doesn't know that the people are gone. It doesn't know that it... It doesn't know that it has no purpose. Right. But it does what it does. Yeah, as far as we can tell, it's not. Right. It's and not so, like... Self-aware. We can read the story and then be like, oh, no. The people are gone. But the house... Yeah. Okay. Does, doesn't realize that mm-hmm. the people are gone. Like, the house just continues to do its job. Waiting for whatever may come. Yeah. Whether or not you're here or not, 
I'm gonna keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Sounds crazy. Yeah. Weird um, to think about. It's a haunting yeah, story. Yeah, I really is. like it a lot. Some really uh, heavy-ish material tonight, mm-hmm. um, which is okay because I, I think the the weight of these stories that's what leaves the impact. That's what gives them their feel and their this the discomfort of it all is that weight um, of, of the other two. And so, so we had some uh, some creepy horror, philosophical horror, some existential horror. Yeah. yeah, we kind of covered the, ran the gamut. gamut. Yeah, whichever you need tonight. Yeah, <laughs> anything you're feeling, we got yeah, you. This man. Halloween yeah. Eve. Yeah, yeah. From from popular apocrypha, happy Halloween. Yes, indeed. Stay safe out there. Be careful. Uh, check your candy for razor teeth blades and, and teeth. Eat your teeth and eat your teeth, as we've said in a different episode. Yes, now it's even more haunting. Eat your teeth and eat your friends. Nope. Yeet. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bite your mouth right now. I've already hit puberty.